from the studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. We appreciate you listening to the show on your Indiana Public Broadcasting station. And if ever you have a question you would like to get on this program, send that to ask at WBAA.org and tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. Uh, I want to start with something that happened a few days before we taped this, which is the passing of former Senator Birch Bayh. He's a Purdue alum. I wondered, what was your relationship with him? Um, By the time you got into public office, he was already out of public office. But it occurred to me, I wondered if you had first come across him when you were working for Senator Luger or something like that. I sure had. Actually, uh, my first encounter at a distance with him was uh, when, uh, as a college student, I spent uh, one term, uh, a summer, and then my fall term working for his opponent in his first re-election campaign, Bill Ruckelshaus, yeah. who went on to become the first administrator of EPA, who went on to stand up to Richard Nixon and Watergate and resigned his Justice Department job over it. But he had those jobs because Birch by beat him in 1968 in a close election. And so then... Uh, years later, uh, I was working for Dick Luger, and they ran against each other. And uh, Senator By won again in another very close election. And so uh, I knew him in that way. But then Luger got elected to the Senate, and I saw Senator By as a senator, and he was in a very, very effective one. Um, finally, though, uh, and most happily from my standpoint, years later in business, he and I were both. Uh, asked to join the same uh, company board, health insurance or a company, uh, part of what is now Anthem in Indianapolis. And so for several years, I got to know him that way. What a terrific person. And we had lots of laughs about uh, old days and things where we'd been on the opposite side, maybe, of an argument. But I came to know him uh, as a great individual. I already knew he'd been a very important public official, of course. And um, and he's certainly one of those people of whom Purdue is very, very proud and always has been. He became the subject of something that you see going around on Twitter and Facebook every now and again. You saw this with John McCain when he passed away, with George H.W. Bush when he passed away, saying, these are the sorts of public servants that we aspire to, people who are not personal, people who are professional, people who are willing to work across the aisle, and people who, it seems, people, voters today think might be in somewhat short supply. Do you agree with that assessment? I do tend to agree with that. Now, he and Senator Luger, uh, when they were contemporaries, lived in a different era, and that was much more the norm. That was the way senators and congressmen were expected to behave. And um, that's what they aspired to, to do big things, uh, to... uh, uh, but to uh, try to actually uh, get things done, and it was understood that – and Birch buys a perfect example. He was always very principled. He had very clear stances that were often at odds with many people in his home state. You have to admire that. He won three elections to the Senate before getting beat by Dan Quayle. And in all three – all three were razor close, which says that – he had been willing now and then to take a, an unpopular or less than fully popular stand. And uh, so I always respected that a lot. 
I reminded an interviewer last week that in 1976, a lot of us thought he would had the best chance of anybody to, in a crowded field to be the Democratic nominee for president. He had very strong support from what was then the heart of the Democratic Party, organized labor. There was still a, a reasonable uh, str- a strand of uh, rural uh, uh, Democratic voters and agricultural voters at, uh, back then. Uh, he had uh, strong support from the civil rights and uh, um, more liberal communities. Um, and he was a great campaigner, great um, personal campaigner. Um, a lot of style. There was a wonderful story that got told last week about how Birch Bayh supposedly knew where every Dairy Queen in the state of Indiana was when he was on the campaign trail. Well, he might well have. Um, and that's something else that went out of our politics. During my term, I made a fetish of, you know, go everywhere, meet everyone. Everybody matters. Every place matters. Uh, the personal thing is... Uh, uh, putting the personal touch back in or the personal contact back in, but I was probably at least subconsciously thinking about people like Birch Bay and how they used to do it when I did. On to something we didn't get to talk about on last month's program because we ran out of time was uh, your discussion that you've started about having a civics literacy test as a graduation requirement. This is something you have talked about, Dennis Cruz has talked about. And I think there are a lot of people who have an agreement on the need for civic education. Of course, you want to have informed voters who know what the system is, who know how to find out about their political candidates. How do you how do you keep the eye on that and not on the process of getting it done? Right. I, I hope you do by uh, saying, as I have uh, 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 at each occasion, let's keep this simple and non-burdensome. We don't need I, – I do believe most of our graduates uh, can pass a basic civics test. They are reasonably conversant with the – uh, ways of citizenship in a in a uh, democracy, in our democracy, but uh, at a time when it's plain that s- staggering percentages of Americans, young and old, don't know those things, I think it'd be very valuable to certify that a Purdue grad does. And so I think we can do that in a pretty straightforward way. And I'm looking forward to working with the uh, um, uh, interested parties, faculty senates, trying to help. But I've said at every step, let's don't make this overcomplicated. I personally don't think we need another course. Maybe some a simple curriculum, maybe something like a, a, a naturalized citizen is supposed to study before becoming an American citizen. So it's interesting you bring that up because there was this uh, open forum that the university senate held a few weeks ago, and um, they they brought up that very idea, and they said, hey, let's, let's look at this for a second. And there was some research that was brought out done by a Michigan State University researcher who had pointed out that the way the naturalized citizenship d- test is done, and I didn't realize this, is there's a hundred possible things you could get asked, but typically you only get asked ten of those things. And depending on which ten you get, you might get a really easy test or you might get a really hard test. Yep. And it was like, well, that's, that's kind of fascinating. And so... There was this interesting agreement of, yes, we want our students to be civically minded and, and to know these things, but there there seemed to be a little bit of uh, thought that maybe we don't want to use the naturalization test. Maybe we want to come to some other instrument. What do you think about that notion? I, I think there's a lot to recommend that. I think the content of the 100-question little manual that uh, is pretty reasonable content. 
And uh, it's on the shelf. You wouldn't have to reinvent something. Um, but I, I do agree that the test is probably inadequate. And uh, maybe that's maybe that's where uh, our our folks can concentrate their effort, add some value. Maybe we come up with a little better instrument that uses the basically the same content, still keeps it simple from the student standpoint. Just drop in any day in four years and take a maybe it's twenty questions or twenty five um, that um, will allow us to put on your transcript. Um, you do know the elements, the basic elements of American. Uh, the American pl- uh, governmental system, and I think that'd be a useful thing. I can tell you, since just floating this idea, we've had lots of inquiries and lots of positive reaction from people say, yeah, someone should take some step here. So there was an interesting comment made by the student body vice president who herself was sitting on that panel, and she said something that I thought was uh, a reasonable comment, if if unfortunate, which is, and I remembered this from my own college life, Sometimes you get asked to take a test and you study so that you will do well on that test, but sometimes that information doesn't necessarily stick for the long term. And I thought, yep, that sounds like what I remember from college, and I'll bet it sounds a little bit like what you remember from college. It seems like something that's happened since time immemorial. How do you avoid that phenomenon? Oh, you can't. Olivia made a a good point, I guess, but... Uh, hard to argue that you're better off never learning it in the first place if you learn it. And then in this case, civics, there are going to be reminders. We're going to have elections. There are going to be news about about uh, Supreme Court decisions or about uh, uh, proposed changes in the Constitution. Who knows? So maybe uh, unlike uh, calculus, maybe you'll get more frequent uh, occasions to be reminded what you learned. It also brought up the issue of, of standardized testing generally, and I wanted to present something to you that was in the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. It was an editorial written by two Purdue-Fort Wayne professors, uh, and I'm going to quote it in part here uh, because they make an interesting uh, point. They say, schools are evaluated and held accountable for the outcomes of standardized tests. Our dependence and acceptance on the supremacy of data and the constant measurement and oversight it demands are out of sync with what civic engagement means. They say, grappling with a rich confusion of ideas, engaging in debate, valuing diverse perspectives with the goal of social transformation. Democracies are not compatible, they say, with certainty, short-term results, top-down control, or passive constituents seeking a final answer. Schools need to engage students in democratic citizenship for meaningful, lasting learning because we, like President Daniels, want citizens who support democratic ideals now and in the future. So they seem to be saying that the, the, the kind of the system needs a change so that you are engaging students in a different way necessarily than just the the test. What do you think of that? Oh, I don't think I, I think there's validity to a lot of what they say. Um, that doesn't mean it'd be wrong to know the basic rules and facts before you start trying to become an engaged citizen involved in transforming things. You want to transform the system might be a good idea to know what it's all about in the first place. And that's all we're talking about. Do people know the basic rules? How many years does a senator serve? Um, you know, who has the power to make war? And, um, uh, you, you know, you, uh, all that other stuff is is fine. Uh, I just We just talked about the fact I was – I finished college in three and a half years. I took a half term with the approval of, of the school I attended and took part in the governmental process. Um, and uh, I'm all for things like that. There are, uh, let's say, non-objective ways for people to uh, try to prepare themselves to be good citizens. But um, uh, 
just like Bill Gates uh, is supposed to have said, uh, I'm all for creativity, but until you can do math and code, you can't draw up a great computer game. And it wouldn't hurt to know the basics before you go out and um, and uh, try to help change the world. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Send your questions to us via email. The address is ask at wbaa.org. You may also tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. We have, of course, just begun daylight saving time again here in Indiana, something that uh, you had some experience with (laughs) during your time in elected office. Um, There's been talk recently uh, about creating some sort of federal bill that says if you're a state like Arizona or Hawaii that still doesn't fully or sometimes at all embrace daylight saving time, we think everybody should do it. What do you think of that idea, being somebody who changed it here in Indiana after quite a long time of consternation about it? Actually, I had not heard that. What I had heard was uh, about bills to make it year-round, so you didn't change clocks. You just put the whole, just stay with the uh, basically the summer, well, uh, spring to fall uh, mm-hmm. uh, time. Um, you know, our experience in Indiana, some people never quite understood it, although we couldn't have been more clear about it. it was all about being in sync. It does not make sense. It makes no economic sense. In fact, it's very harmful to a place if it's constantly moving in and out of sync with the rest of a wired world. And I never cared what time zone we were in. In fact, my initial proposal was let's go to daylight saving time like the rest of America and go to the central time zone. And that didn't, you know, that requires uh, U.S. government approval, oddly enough, from the Department of Transportation. This all started back in the railroad era. And um, the idea being more in line with Chicago, to which we are geographically closer yeah, than New York or DC. Yeah, what a lot of people, and and I, I get, I understand it. But a lot of people, I don't like about daylight savings time. We sit, it's, we sit on the western edge of the eastern time zone, and so uh, the effect is a little more exaggerated here than if we were, a, if we were further east. And uh, so fine, you know, I, I never, my, I used to say sarcastically, I don't go if we, care if we go on Hawaiian time as long as we. Just get in step so that people don't have to reprogram their computers twice a year, that the shipments aren't always showing up one hour too early or one hour too late, that conference calls have to be rescheduled. There were hundreds of those little um, little nicks in, in our economy every single year, and that's what we tried to fix. I remember my mom when I was in college here in Indiana going, which time are you on now? Yeah. Like several times a year when we wanted to have phone that, calls. That was the problem. It was never about – I. I, I it didn't matter that much to me whether you're, you like your sunlight in the morning or your sunlight in the evening. That's a anybody can um, have an opinion on that. But uh, no, you know, I had airline experts tell me back then. You know, Indianapolis would have been a perfect place for a hub as they built out years ago their hub and spoke system. Except, except for that screwball time thing of yours, we're not going to reschedule all our flights twice a year. So that was that was what the Indiana. Um, argument was about, and I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, but if somebody wants to change the rules for everyone, fine. You know, uh, I, I don't have a problem one way or another. Just standardization is the good mm-hmm. thing. So something else that's been talked about on kind of a wholesale level and that's being talked about here in Indiana, too, is legalization of, of hemp and possibly even marijuana. Mm-hmm. You've seen this from a number of different levels. Now as the leader of an educational institution, you've seen it running a state where it affects a, a number of things from 
uh, prison population to how we spend money on other mm-hmm. things to your own college experience, which is well documented and we won't we won't belabor that here. What's your view, uh, especially now as the leader of a college? What's your view on legalizing marijuana, hemp, all of it? Yeah, I have two views. One, which I've learned a lot about here at Purdue, because we have some experts on this, that hemp uh, ought to be uh, legalized as a commodity, and that's it's on its way to that. There are very valuable uses uh, that don't involve, um, uh, you know, mind-altering effects. And so uh, I, I think that it's more than past time to make that change, and this this could be a, 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 you know, a new boost to economies like Indiana's and a real benefit, it appears, both industrially and in terms of some medicinal uh, uh, real value. So that that I'm really glad to see that. The second view is that this is another great validation for the federal system that we have, in which states, 50 states, are each free, and I hope will always be. I wish they were freer, frankly, to uh, try things their own way. Um, I think for the moment, I'm out of public life, but if I were there, I think I'd re- I'd maintain a watch and wait attitude for a while longer. So you're paying attention to the dozen or so states that right now have legalized marijuana That's and right. see how we're, it goes? We're, we're a few years in, uh, at, uh, and uh, might be that this will look pretty good. Uh, but on the other hand, auto accidents and things like this are up by st- statistically significant percentages. Not huge, but they're up in these states. We ought to watch them for a while and just make sure that um, benefits that, uh, uh, that can be argued for, for making this change are not outweighed by any costs. And so I think it's another uh, great example, and there are so many of these, where a system that encourages experimentation, innovation in public policy, uh, it, but but also allows others to uh, emulate the things that seem to work and stay away from the things that are tried and don't work too well, has a, has a lot going for it. And I'm, I'm sure glad we operate that kind of system. Um, that civics test, if we ever get one around here, probably ought to have a question or two about federalism, make sure that Tomorrow's citizens understand that. What, if anything, do you think, if if Indiana looks at Washington and looks at Colorado and California and, and takes a look at all of the data from places like that and goes, all right, maybe this wasn't as, as much of a boogeyman as we thought it might be, what would you think, as the leader of a higher educational institution, about the possibility of that being legalized? How does that affect the college atmosphere, do you think, if it happens? I think that's one of the things that we really want to study. In addition to auto accidents, uh, there's also some evidence growing about the about the effect on cognition uh, and memory, especially for younger people whose brains are still developing. Uh, be very useful to know that. You um, would feel badly, I think, if you were looking back years later and felt that you had really hurt the um, the uh, development and. Um, and perhaps the uh, academic performance of of students who came here. On to other things, uh, you recently uh, went before state lawmakers, as you do most every year, but certainly during budget sessions. And one of the key things you talked about was trying to get more money for Purdue's veterinary school, which is 
one of the oldest, if not the oldest, in the country. And you have been talking for a while now about the need to revamp at least the physical facility over there. And uh, you spoke in some fairly dire terms to say, look, if we don't get a significant amount of money for this, bad stuff is going to happen. Explain why you're, you're making that argument. It's all about the hospital, and you're you're quite right. It's not it's the oldest hospital among the 28 vet schools in the United States, and um, we have we we do try to be very responsible here about capital investment, and there and that means that we try to be responsible what we ask the taxpayers of the state to spend on buildings here, and we have put off maybe um, a cycle or two too long, asking for. Uh, the help, um, their help to build the vet hospital. We can't do it without state aid, and here's why. We can only train, by the nature of it, a certain number of vets in a year, so we don't have a very large alumni base. And veterinarians earn a good income, but they don't go on and become extraordinary. They don't start companies and become very wealthy doing it or wind up in huge corporate jobs. And so, just to be very candid, our ability to raise money ourselves for that purpose is is kind of limited. Is it something you've been trying to, and you've been and you oh, found yeah. and, out through trial and, we, and error you can't? And we have good success, but it, nothing. That, but the, this hospital is extraordinarily expensive, especially relative to the number of students. You know that we can uh, uh, that we will be training there. So we we've held off and held off, tried to get by with some uh, repair and rehabilitation and things like that. But I, I told the uh, legislators honestly that now when the accreditors have said, you just can't wait any longer, we can't continue to give you the good housekeeping seal um, f- for the facilities you have. Uh, for, uh, one, one example I can uh, use is that uh, regulations now have evolved and are pretty clear. You have to keep certain species physically separated because there's a chance of diseases crossing over. And our facility doesn't allow that to the extent the regulations require. So uh, there are things like that. And uh, But I do feel that we've been responsible. We've waited maybe longer than we should have. Um, and uh, by, and I, I will tell you that we've had really good response. We brought a lot of legislators up just to say, look for yourself. And um, uh, they, uh, I think everybody feels like Purdue has squeezed uh, full value out of uh, a 60-year-old-plus uh, uh, facility, and that we do want to stay in the veterinary uh, business. It's very important to human health. Another big point we made is it's not just about our agricultural economy and all the ways in which veterinarians preserve that. Um, so many diseases now cross over from animal species to humans, or could, that this is part of the very much a part of the fabric of protecting human health in the state and the research that we do there, which is, can also be critical for new pharmaceutical developments, let's say. And so um, I, th- I think there's an understanding that really this is an asset and a public interest asset, just like the dental school or the medical school. Uh, that IU operates. Another Purdue school that's been in the news lately is the second Purdue Polytech location in Indianapolis, which uh, there was a story recently by uh, Chalkbeat, the education reporting consortium down in Indianapolis, that said that the second location is having some trouble locating enough people for its inaugural class in the fall. Is that right? Too soon to say. What is fair to say is that um, because really of, of difficulties about the real estate 
um, uh, that uh, got off to a slow start. The Indianapolis public schools have two sign-up periods. And uh, we're in the second one now, which goes all the way to April the 30th. And uh, uh, this school uh, missed the first sign-up period. So it's playing catch-up. Um, but there's great enthusiasm in the Broad Ripple area. The community, They have a strong community association, neighborhood association, and others who are very interested, especially in um, – uh, a minority uh, uh, and low-income kids uh, uh, near there having a new option. That we're pretty optimistic. We've got about 50 signed up now, uh, and uh, lots of uh, of uh, inquiries and phone calls. I checked uh, as recently as this weekend. And how many do you want? More than 100. Um, eventually, 150 would be a, a good target for this first class. Yes, okay. per class. Okay, per class. But um, it was a close call. I'll, I'll tell you very honestly that I was ready to say we better wait a year. Again, it, we just the, the, the board that, op, that will operate the school um, has worked hard on this, but IPS was not prepared to let the former Broad Ripple High School be used. They'll have to explain their own reasoning for that. And so although there was all this enthusiasm and – this is in a very good area if you're trying to attract, build this pipeline, uh, which we are, to Purdue of uh, lower-income students. Um, but it was not till oh, a month ago that we were able, that the board was able to say, let's go for it. We have a site we can use for the first year and so forth. So they've been playing catch-up ball. Um, but I feel uh, better after the uh, watching the last week or so. And... Um, Remind me, if you would, of the admission criteria here, because a lot of times what happens in any sort of education where admission is selective at all is people begin to worry if numbers are down, that admission criteria will change in some way. Uh, what do you what do you say to, to that sort of you know worry that comes up over and over and over? Well, it's open admission, um, and um, we have to have a lottery. We've had to, um, at the first school, we've had more applicants than we were able to accept, and so there's a lottery to see who gets in and doesn't. In, here, in this case, the criteria is almost on the student and family end because you know, it's a STEM-oriented school. Uh, it'll be probably a little more challenging than uh, – certainly for students, if they're behind in math, uh, be a little more challenging. And it's a very different way of – teaching, as we've discussed here, a lot, which the students, by the way, seem to like, which is more project-oriented and more hands-on. But um, it's really a matter of whether students decide they're going to like the school rather than the, rather than the school having criteria they can't meet. In our last couple of minutes here, uh, you, something we talked about a number of months ago, the school's continuing to block some internet sites and applications on its PAL network, which is the big network that's used uh, across the entire campus. Uh, so you're expanding that to all classrooms. You've also set up this companion network, if I'm right, where those are still usable. Is that correct? Sure. Um, what I can tell you is that we, we tiptoed up to this a little bit carefully and, and, as you know, started just in a few classrooms. And what I can report is, first of all, we have had zero, literally zero, student complaints. And we have had... Lots of good feedback from students who say, uh, I'm less often distracted because somebody's watching a movie or playing a game. It seemed to be awful hard to argue for in an academic context. We thought so, but again, we were careful about this. Anytime you make a change, uh, someone might 
uh, find a problem with it. Uh, and I can also tell you, it's been widely reported, that uh, what we immediately heard from faculty was, how can I get that in my lecture hall? And so uh, we uh, ran uh, a small-scale a pilot, I guess you could say. The results on both ends, were student and faculty, were very, very uh, positive, and so we've, uh, we're making it uh, the rule in academic spaces. All right. Well, that's the time we've got for the show. Thanks, as always, for your time, and uh, we'll talk to you again, I guess, just before the uh, legislative session ends in April. You mean after we've won the final, after we've gone to the final four? I, I resist making predictions on this show. Anything is possible. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Email questions at any time to ask at wbaa.org. I'm your host, Stan Jastrzewski. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960. Today in print, ebook, and open access formats. More information at thepress.purdue.edu.